This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. At Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. Today's podcast is the top 10 truths every physician needs to know when deciding to transition to a non-clinical career. When did you decide to be a physician? I'll bet that when you made that decision, you thought you had made a career-long, if literally not a lifelong, decision. Am I right? You know, I'd further venture that from that moment on, whether family, instructors, attendings, or other physicians, well, they all just reinforced that belief. Being a physician meant one thing. It meant treating patients, and treating patients is what you do. Well, it's what you expected to do forever. Now here we are. You're listening to a podcast about non-clinical careers. You may have visited my website, thirdevo.com. That's short for Third Evolution. And you may have attended some pep rally-like conferences, read some articles, bought some books. Hopefully, mine was one of those. But what all that has led to is confusion. It's confusing because too many people are telling you too many different things. My objective is to remove some of that confusion. I want to help establish some baseline truths that if you will consider and put to use will certainly help your career transition. I want you to consider career change based on facts, legitimate facts, not fantasy, not emotion, not some pie in the sky, gee, look what I've done that you hear someone else talk about. Let's just focus on the facts. I call these facts the top 10 truths every physician needs to know when it's time to take off the stethoscope. I first developed this list to calm the pretty natural reservations that so many of my clients have had over the years because being physicians, I find that when you have a legitimate set of facts to act upon and to base your decisions on, you tend to make pretty good decisions. Therefore, instead of trying to create some false sense of guaranteed pathways or preordained outcomes, some list of the jobs or the industries that you're supposed to migrate to, I just want to arm you with a solid set of facts. Then you can decide if it is, indeed, time to hang up your stethoscope. So let's begin with number 10, and we'll build ourselves up to the first most important thing for you to remember if you're thinking about leaving clinical practice. Number 10 is this, create a new roadmap for your success. I say that because you've followed a roadmap your entire career. Heavy on sciences in high school, then pre-med medical school, residency, perhaps a fellowship, and then practice. You've always had a logical, even necessary or required next step. Now you don't. Now you're walking into the unknown. These are pathways you've not traveled before, and you need to know your way. You need also to accept in this process, if not literally embrace ambiguity. I want you to sample a bit. 
What you're going to find as you move to the non-clinical world is there are many, many choices and options, and none of those require a, a finite decision at this point. You're allowed to look around. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to start down a certain pathway and stop and regroup and decide perhaps something a little bit different would be better. As you make this decision, it is a decision that I want you to think of as evolving as opposed to you're going to open a door, go through it, and close it behind you. No, you're going to walk into an arena and look around and realize the realm and the range of possibilities and opportunities that are literally available to you today. Ultimately, you will want a roadmap. But before we take such a definitive step, let's take a little bit of a step back and think of a compass as opposed to a roadmap. A roadmap is going to define specific routes and activities. A compass is going to point you in the right direction. In this first step, you really want to be focused on deciding what is the right direction. Think about this process, and it is very definitely a process with a beginning and a middle and an end. Think of this process as a journey. And as with any journey, the first decision point is not what flight will I take or what route will I travel, but it is where do I think I want to go generally. And as you explore that journey, it becomes more focused and more refined. And your career transition is very definitely a journey. Now, how do you do that? How do you take those first steps? How do you uh, align and assign focal points for your career transition? On one hand, it's simple. I suggest you talk with people. You explore. You ask people what they do. You talk to people about what you're interested in doing, and you get their reactions. And as you talk to people, you're going to become more refined in your focus and ultimately able to take next steps that will be more geared toward establishing those actual routes for you to follow. But if you don't know those people or can't readily find them, talk with who you know. In other words, you know a lot of people more than you probably think you do. For example, you probably have an accountant, you may have an attorney. Those are people who work with many other kinds of business people in many different career and industrial settings. Talking with your accountant or your attorney can open a door from not only their perspective, but it can also open doors with those clients, those other clients that they have that for informational purposes, to afford you the opportunity to explore, they may be very happy to introduce you to. Now, a critical point of order is this, and it goes to the very concept of the compass. You don't need to precisely know 
your non-clinical focus, not at this juncture. You just need to know how to ask questions about it. Ask questions about things you're interested in. I say to many of my clients, if, if you can't really define a, an industry path or a specific uh, career path to follow, think about what interests you. Think about what problems you would like to solve. What types of newspaper articles do you, do you read? Those are motivating factors that, that stir your interest. And translating those back into solving problems looking at the career avenues that deal with or address those problems, that can start a level of focus. And as you talk to people and ask their opinions as well, you're going to realize that even without trying, you're starting to draft the initial pathways on that new roadmap. Now, truth number nine, change takes time. You didn't become a physician overnight. You're certainly not going to become something, anything else. You're not going to enter a, a new career avenue instantly. It is a time-involved process. Again, it is a process that you will chart out. And with that, you want to establish the milestones workable timelines and expectations that are going to keep you focused, keep you motivated, and allow you to actually measure your success. This is going to be particularly true if you're juggling your transition management activities against a busy office or a surgery schedule. You're going to have to make certain that you measure your time measure your focus in an effective manner. The other thing is if you're an employed physician versus someone with their own practice, it can be even more difficult because you don't have as much control over your time. It's much more difficult for you to close out an afternoon or even a few hours of your office schedule to focus on your transition activities. Regardless, overall, I suggest to my clients to look at a 9 to 14 month timeline for their career transition. Nine months, that's moving, frankly, quite aggressively. Transitioning in 12 to 14 months is more the average and more easily accessed. But also, consider this. Are you transitioning to a job or are you transitioning into a new business enterprise? Right now, I would say about half my clients are looking for, or I maybe say interested in a job, an employment situation, and about half are looking toward creating a, an entrepreneurial endeavor. So transitioning to a job, well, it's a binary event. You either have a job or you don't. Transitioning into a business is more of an evolutionary type of event. Businesses, almost any, is going to begin at a slower pace and grow. With a job, your income will be like flipping a switch on or off. You're going to move from practice or you're going to move from some transitionary status into employment. One day you're going to be getting income from your practice. The next day you're going to be receiving a check from a company. It's that fast. With a business, your income is likely to be more gradual. And I'll encourage you to consider the business growth factor in making your personal economic decisions, but also 
in how you look at this transition process. When I'm working with a client, uh, I often draw a, a rectangle on a whiteboard. And in that rectangle, uh, for starting from the upper left-hand corner and going to the lower right-hand corner, I draw a, a diagonal line. Effectively, what I'm drawing are your current and your future careers. So the bottom triangle is your current practice or job activity. The top triangle is your future or your desired one. And if we have a vertical line that moves left to right through that rectangle, initially your time and your income is entirely derived from your current activity. But gradually you start adding more and more of the new activity. And at some point, you might say the, the decision point, you have to decide where am I going to commit? Because you probably can't just stay in the middle. You're going to have to make a commitment. And at that point, you'll actually be able to make a clear and sound logical decision of which pathway to follow. Truth number seven, you have impressive accomplishments. When extending, improving, or even saving human lives are your critical career accomplishments, well, balancing your books or getting a good deal on a new copy or negotiating a, a fairly favorable contract with a managed care organization, those may seem almost like necessary evils, things that you have to do. However, in business, all those ancillary activities that you've done, they suddenly take on a significant level of importance. So when you introspectively ask, what have I done, I advise you to look at those activities and not be overly modest about their importance. Recognize the value of them away from a medical practice setting. Write down those accomplishments and then share them with a close confidant. Ask them if they see these as being helpful or of interest to that new career area that you're exploring. And in that conversation, part of your question is, how would you define that? If, for example, you negotiated a favorable managed care contract, ask that person how they would characterize that because they're very likely to see that in a bit of a different perspective than you do purely from a reimbursement perspective. Remember also, You've probably had several committee assignments, and whether this is in practice at the hospital or perhaps even a community organization, accomplishments that occur, outcomes that occur as a result of committee assignments, they're accomplishments for every member of the committee, not just the most vocal person, not just the person at the head of the table. Those accomplishments are your accomplishments as well. Truth number eight, you have contacts. You know people. What I experience so often when I sit down with one of my clients and start talking about networking, because the function of having contacts is networking, the first reaction is I, I don't know that many people, particularly outside of my medical profession, direct contacts in the hospital, and these certainly aren't people you can go and talk to about this endeavor. But if you have listened to other podcasts, mine and, and other individuals, I'm sure you have learned the fact that networking is 
one of the vital keys to your success and being able to move into a non-clinical career. As I'd mentioned earlier, you certainly have an accountant and perhaps an attorney, and there may be a pastor or rabbi, even a fitness instructor, your, your barber. All these are people who deal with a lot of people from many walks of life, and they are individuals who are there to help you. You pay them for some relationship or service. Asking for their help, asking for some advice, asking their opinions as well as, and maybe more importantly, who do they know? That becomes a valuable avenue to meeting more and new people. And this is an important point of order. It's one of my, I'll say, most true truisms. You never know who other people know. You may think that you hang out in the, in the same or similar social circles or professional organizations and, and memberships, but you'll be surprised when you start talking to people about what you want to do and your interests and ask what advice they might have, who may surface from their list of contacts that can help you. I'm often reminded of a personal story. When I was a hospital executive in a Midwestern city that happened to be the corporate headquarters for a multinational uh, Fortune 50 manufacturing organization, my regular, regular Saturday morning foursome at the country club consisted of myself, a senior vice president with that manufacturing organization, a gentleman who owned his own marketing and public relations agency, and a paper product salesman. Well, I'm a hospital executive. If you wanted to meet someone from that manufacturing organization, I would not necessarily be the first person you'd think of to ask. And the same for an introduction to someone to take over your PR or marketing activities. And if you wanted to get a better price on toilet paper for your office, again, I'm not the first person you would think of to ask. But the reality is every Saturday morning, those were the people I had contact with and I could broker an introduction to someone else for. So don't get caught up with thinking you only are looking for people who definitely are either doing what you want to do or work in an organization that does it or that you're certain has inside knowledge of what you're looking for. Talk to anyone because any business person will very likely have had experiences in other related industries as well as just that list of social and business contacts that they have been able to, de to develop. Further, you can create a new set of contacts. When I talk to my clients about contacts, I always say there are three kinds of contacts or three categories. There are the people you know, there are the people you would like to know, and there are people I know. Well, what I've found over the years is that many, many job opportunities evolve from the people you would like to know. So how do you meet people you would like to know? Well, a simple process. Once you've made a decision in terms of your compass point and you know you're interested in a specific career or field, then Google for conferences, seminars on those topics put on perhaps by professional associations and organizations. Remember, every career field has 
some level of society or association or organization that people who work in that area belong to. Look for conferences and seminars and go to one. Simply by walking through the door of a conference, you're perceived to have a reason to be there. It's that simple. And when I spoke earlier about sampling, sampling different types of career opportunities, going to conferences and seminars is an excellent way to do just that, to sample, to see if you like the people, if you like the conversations, if you feel like you fit or you want to fit with any particular group. Truth number six, nobody's going to die. Now, that may sound like an odd thing to say, but it's a fact. You're literally used to making life and death decisions. And if not life and death, certainly decisions that carry very heavy consequences. But I recall speaking with an old client who was telling me about her new non-clinical job. And just really, uh, the, the lack of pressure that she felt compared to medical practice. And as she talked through doing different activities, working on different kinds of projects, and some things worked out and some things didn't work out, she kind of laughed and said, you know, at the end of the day, the big difference is nobody's going to die no matter what I do. Truth number five, you may be losing money every day you wait. You may very well be surprised by non-clinical income opportunities. Depending on the type of business, you should expect an equitable-based salary, very likely a, a bonus that could range anywhere from 10 to 50%, and in some environments, even more. Perhaps stock options, depending on ownership of the organization, and other perks and benefits that are typical to the industry. All and all, you may find it very reasonable to expect to equal or exceed your current income in practice. And beyond your starting point in a non-clinical career, ask yourself this question. When's the last time in practice that you received a raise? And maybe more specifically, when's the last time in practice you received more income that was not tied directly to an increase in the number of patients, the number of surgeries, the number of procedures? In a non-clinical environment, you should expect that, one, you will receive increases on a regular basis. It may be annually. It may be even more frequently, but also expect that those increases are tied to not just what you do individually, but also what those around you, what your team is doing, what the organization is doing. You'll find a much greater emphasis on being able to work smarter as opposed to simply being able to work harder. And let me make one other comment about income, and it's this, clients are often asking me, in, in what business, what industry, what kind of a job, where am I going to make the most money? And whenever I'm asked that, I always think of uh, the infamous Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde when someone asked her, why do you always rob banks? Her reply was simple, because that's where the money is. Well, I'd say the same thing in terms of a non-clinical job. The more revenue you're responsible for, the more money you'll likely earn. And when you're in a non-clinical job, you might say you can be principally responsible for revenue or principally responsible for costs or, or expenses. Revenue responsibility tends to produce greater incomes than cost or expense responsibilities. So as you're evaluating job types and even specific jobs and roles within an organization, ask yourself how much revenue does this particular role uh, generate 
what is it responsible for generating, and the more direct that relationship, uh, the more you can probably expect to make, both in base and in bonus and other opportunities. Truth number four, a medical degree is a great education. I'm often confronted by clients who say, well, do I need to go back to school? Do I need to get uh, an MBA? Do I need to get a, a master's degree or an MPH or something, something else to augment my medical degree in order to qualify for another job? My response is, is this. If you are coming literally from medical school, you may want to think about getting an additional degree. But if you've been out in the world for 5, 10, 15 plus years, then you've gained enough practical experience in business and in managing uh, relationships, in managing complex situations and problems and challenges that you need no further or should not need any further educational credentials to qualify for most jobs. That said, in the non-clinical world, there is no set group of requirements that a potential employer may be allowed to or expected to ask for. So certainly an organization can state that they want a further advanced degree beyond a medical degree for a specific role, but I would not consider it a hard and fast requirement. What can generally suffice or even supplant that requirement is experience. And looking for ways to expand your experiences to add to your resume quite literally can be of significant value. Now, you may ask, what opportunities can I have or create to expand the experiential background that I have? Something I suggest to clients is look for opportunities to do pro bono work. There may be projects uh, in your hospital and the other organizations that you may be affiliated with. There are also incubator groups in almost every city in the country that will often have startup enterprises focused on healthcare issues and topics. Venture out to those incubator sites, talk to the individuals, find out what they're involved in. What I think you will find is this. There won't be any physicians there. They may be experts in, in information technology and, and data processing and different types of of areas that support the actual product development, but from the standpoint of the product environment, i.e. healthcare or medicine, they will not necessarily have uh, a significant depth of knowledge or expertise. Certainly, certainly not at the level you can offer. Providing them with some free consulting work for nothing more than perhaps uh, a listing on their website that uh, classifies you as a scientific advisory board member or a medical director, accompanying with a business card, starts to build resume credentials that can be quite valuable. And if you're able to generate this type of a, an opportunity to build on your experience, I strongly recommend you do this. Document what you do. And don't just document that you were there. Don't just say, I advised a certain group on a project. Look at why you advised them. In other words, what was the basis of your advice? 
What problem were you trying to solve or resolve for them? And what was the outcome of your advice? What actions were taken as a result of your suggestion? In other words, we're going beyond what I consider typical CV types of presentations that says, this is where I was, to more of a resume type of focus that says, this is where I was, but I was there for this reason, to address these problems, and I produced these results. That becomes a really important distinction when you're talking to people about non-clinical roles. What was the impact of your involvement? What was your value? Truth number three, your medical degree is important. I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and I uh, abide by this philosophy as well. There are two phone calls I always take. One is from an attorney, and the other is from a physician. Use the fact that you're a doctor. Introduce yourself as doctor when you first make contact with individuals. And I promise you, they will be more attentive to your call and what you have to say. It will open a door. It's not going to keep it open necessarily. That's going to rely on your stump speech and your ability to convey a a sense of, of value to them, but it will certainly Get your foot in the door for that initial opportunity. So don't be so self-deprecating that you stop saying, this is doctor. Use it or lose it, as they say, and the same is true with your title. If people become too accustomed to calling you simply by your first name, or worse yet, by Mr. or Ms., then you've lost the aura. But don't get me wrong. You don't need to preface everything you say with, I'm a physician, but you can suggest to colleagues that you prefer to be introduced as doctor and allow you then to tell the person to call you by your first name, assuming that's your preference. And there are other ways to say I'm a physician without making it an announcement. Use analogies, for example. Refer to situations that relate to the issues or problems you're talking about by saying, well, when I was in medical practice or in my medical practice, I did this as a manner of saying, I'm a physician. I had a medical practice. I see this from a different perspective than you. Truth number two, you can do anything. Physicians are often criticized, at least by administrators, and remember I used to be one, for thinking they're experts in absolutely everything. However, a funny thing happens when physicians quit practicing. They suddenly believe they're expert in nothing, nothing other than the practice they left. Well, it's not true. Your expertise, your critical thinking, your knowledge, your judgment, and many of your skills, they're entirely portable and transferable. You've not lost anything, and you're not leaving something behind. Rather, you're building on everything that you've done. Managing a patient, for example, any patient, whether medically or surgically, it's a process. And processes needing management, processes needing improvement, and even processes needing to be discovered or created. They're everywhere. Processes are the foundation for solving problems, and it's what you do best. You're an expert problem solver. You just need to learn to channel your sense of expertise into the new and different directions, the new and different problems that you want to be solving. We've made it to truth number one, and here it is. The most important thing for you to always remember forever You're still a physician. So many clients say to me, I don't know what I'll do when I'm no longer a doctor. Well, you're always a doctor, a physician, even though you're not 
practicing. So don't give up your license, maintain your association and professional memberships, and keep right on doing what you've been doing, minus the patients. So there you have them, the top 10 truths every physician needs to know when you're considering leaving clinical practice. If I were to sum those 10 into just one, it would be this. If you want to change, you can. You've already accomplished what fewer than 1% of the U.S. population can do. You've become a physician. And did you know that among all the career fields considered professional, physicians represent fewer than 2% of that group? So really, the only thing standing between you and your next success is you. For Third Evolution, this is Bob Pretty. Thanks for listening. And you can always reach me for questions and comments at 720-339-3585 for text and voice or email me at rfp at thirdevo.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 